Welcome to the sermon podcast of Redemption Church. The following sermon is by Pastor Gary Alloway. Good afternoon, everyone. I'm coming to you here in Susan's office because we managed to fail to record our sermon this past Sunday. So our sermon tonight is from Romans 2, verses 12 to chapter 3, verse 8. All right, you ready? Paul is speaking and he says, All who sin apart from the law will also perish apart from the law. And all who sin under the law will be judged by the law. For it is not those who hear the law who are righteous in God's sight, but it is those who obey the law who will be declared righteous. Indeed, when Gentiles who do not have the law do by nature things required by the law, they are a law for themselves, even though they do not have the law. They show that the requirements of the law are written on their hearts, their consciences also bearing a witness, and their thoughts sometimes accusing them and at other times defending them. This will take place on the day when God judges people's secrets through Jesus Christ, as my gospel declares. Now you, you, if you call yourself a Jew, if you rely on the law and boast in God, if you know his will and approve of what is superior because you are instructed by the law, if you are convinced that you are a guide for the blind, a light for those who are in the dark, an instructor of the foolish, a teacher of little children, because you have in the law the embodiment of knowledge and truth. You then who teach others, do you not teach yourself? You who preach against stealing, do you steal? You who say that people should not commit adultery, do you commit adultery? You who abhor idols, do you also rob temples? You who boast in the law, do you dishonor God by breaking the law? As it is written, God's name is blasphemed among the Gentiles because of you. Circumcision has value if you observe the law, but if you break the law, you have become as though you have not been circumcised. So then, if you who are not circumcised keep the law's requirements, will they not be regarded as though they were circumcised? The one who is not circumcised physically and yet obeys the law will condemn you who even though you have the written code and circumcision, are a lawbreaker. A person is not a Jew who is one only outwardly, nor is circumcision merely outward and physical. No, a person is a Jew who is one inwardly, and circumcision is circumcision of the heart by the spirit, not by the written code. Such a person's praise is not from other people, but from God. What advantage, then, is there in being a Jew? Or what value is there in circumcision? Much in every way. First of all, the Jews have been entrusted with the very words of God. What if some were unfaithful? Would their unfaithfulness nullify God's faithfulness? Not at all. Let God be true in every human being a liar, as it is written, so that you may be proved right when you speak and prevail when you judge. But if our unrighteousness brings out God's righteousness more clearly, what shall we say? That God is unjust in bringing his wrath on us? I am using a human argument. Certainly not. If that were so, how could God judge the world? Someone might argue, if my falsehood enhances God's truthfulness and so increases his glory, 
Why am I still condemned as a sinner? Why not say, as some slanderously claim that we say, let us do evil that good might result. Their condemnation is just. The word of the Lord. So did you get that all? A nice thick passage for us to dig into. This is our third week in the book of Romans, and like our previous two weeks, Paul gives us a lot to chew on. If you're able to listen to my sermon from two weeks ago, you heard a little of the background of this book, that Paul is writing this book to the church in Rome somewhere around 57 AD. He's never actually visited this community, but he hopes to visit soon. And they are having all these problems with Jewish Christians and Gentile Christians and Jews and Gentiles in general not getting along. So Paul is laying out a gospel that is big enough to help them see that they are brothers and sisters together. And if you were able to hear Ian's sermon from last week, we see Paul begins the body of this letter by going on this long rant about how terrible the Gentiles are. And it can be really intense. He goes on and on and on. They're bad, they're bad, they're bad, they're bad. And as soon as you've worked kind of this fever pitch, he turns it around and says, but you were bad also. You also are terrible. You do all the things that you condemn them of doing. And so don't judge. That's God's job. Instead, when you see your brothers and sisters, humbly, humble yourself and walk towards Jesus together. And Paul's going to pick up this theme again. In many ways, this is part two of his argument. And we'll see next Sunday, Susan will pick up part three of his argument here. So what do we need to know about our larger passage here? What do we need to know about Romans 2, 12 to 3, 8? Paul wants us to know that God is bigger than our religious categories. God does not belong to us, but we belong to God. And so our non-Christian friends, we do not stand over and we do not stand against, but we stand next to and humbly walk towards Jesus together. Amen? Amen. So Paul's not the easiest writer to understand, and the situation that he's talking to is not one that we are presently in. We don't really understand necessarily what it means to be a first century Jew or how they would have viewed Gentiles. So I took a chance on this passage, and I want to try something creative with it. And I rewrote this passage as a translation that I think fits our context a little bit better. I know it's not theologically perfect, so don't print it out and pull out every word, and I know you can find problems with it. And it is a creative exercise, so uh, give it some grace. Second, it might offend in some ways. It might offend our evangelical sensibilities, but I think that's the point. This passage actually was fairly offensive to its original Jewish readers. So if it doesn't offend a little bit, then it's kind of missing the mark. So you guys ready? This is the 21st century version of Romans 2. On the day when God judges people's secrets through Jesus Christ, all who sin will be judged. Those who claim to be in Christ will be judged by the standards of Christ. Those who are outside of Christ will be judged in their own way. For it is not those who claim to be Christians who are righteous, but those who do the things of Christ. In fact, Sometimes non-Christians are way better at doing the things of Christ than you are. Sometimes they look and smell a lot more like Jesus than you do. After all, Christ is written on their hearts too, and the longings of, and convictions of Christ are in us all. 
And by this, they show that they are people created in the image of God and that God is at work in all people. Now, if you call yourself a Christian and boast that you have the Bible, that the truth belongs to you, that you are the light of the world, that the secular world walks in darkness, that you are called to correct the errors of this world, do you ever bother to correct yourself? You condemn the world for its sexuality, but do you ever bother to clean up your own house? You say the world is corrupt, but don't you worship money and power just the same as everyone else? You say you are God's special people, but you dishonor Christ by how you live. As it is written, God's name is mocked among the non-Christians because of you. Christianity has value if you follow it. But if you're just putting on the dressing without actually seeking to become like Christ, it's as though you are not in Christ at all. So then, when the non-Christians love their neighbor and pray for their enemies and care for the poor, will they not be regarded as though they were in Christ? In fact, the non-Christian who seeks the things of God, they will condemn you. You who have the gospel and yet do not do the things of God. A person is not a Christian who is one outwardly. Christianity is not a matter of wearing the right clothes or hanging out in the right places or having the right political opinions. A person is a Christian who is one inwardly, and faithfulness is a matter of the heart, by the Spirit, not by the written code. If you live out your faith, you will win the praise of God, not just, that, not just the cheers of other people. So then, what advantage is there in being a Christian? So much in every way. We have been given Jesus, the way, the truth, and the life. We have the Bible to teach us, the traditions of the church to remind us who we are, the stories of the saints to guide us in how to live. We do not have to grasp at the truth. We see it clearly in Jesus. We have been entrusted with the very words of God. Will the sins of the church nullify God's love for her? Will God abandon his bride even in all her ugliness? By no means. God's love for us was never based on our greatness to begin with. God will be faithful to his people, to those God has called, even if we never deserve it. Amen. Amen? So I want us to see what Paul is doing in this passage, that he's taking these categories of Jewish and Gentile and blowing them up. He's blowing them up and saying to those who are, who are Jews, who are part of the Jewish tradition, that God doesn't belong to you. It's not those who have the right re religious identification that are right with God, but those who actually do the things of God. And I don't want us to hear this in the wrong way. God, Paul is not making God smaller. This is not like a wishy-washy sort of believe whatever you want. Paul is saying that God is bigger. God is over everyone. God is over all of us, Jews and Gentiles, Christians and non-Christians, that God made everyone. And God does not stay in the boundaries that we make for God. God wouldn't be much of a God if he did. And so God does not belong to us but we belong to God, and so do our neighbors, even if they aren't yet in Christ. And so rather than stand above or stand against our neighbors, we walk humbly towards Jesus together. And this is our calling.
So that's kind of our overarching theme. There's a couple smaller points I want to make with this, so, so let me dive into that, all right? So first of all, one thing we should get from this passage, don't assume that non-Christians don't have God. There's been this tendency in evangelical Christianity to think that if Christianity is really true, we have to convince ourselves that Christians are really good people and non-Christians are really bad people. So if we see a non-Christian who seems to be a kind and loving and cares for the poor and is generally a good human being, we try and cut them down. You guys know this tendency? We try to convince ourselves that the righteousness isn't genuine because how could it be? They don't have Jesus after all. But to this line of thinking, Paul says nonsense. Do you really think God is bound by the boundaries of the church? Do you think God can't work outside our religious categories? Do you think that person wasn't created in the image of God through Christ? And do you think that God is not stirring in them, calling them, loving them, leading them to follow the Christ that they were created within? Later in this chapter, in chapter 3, Paul will say, Is God the God of Jews only? Is he not the God of Gentiles too? Yes, of Gentiles too, since there is only one God. In other words, if there truly is only one God, he is the God of all people in all places. So we shouldn't be surprised when we see non-Christians doing Jesus-y things. That's what Paul says. We shouldn't be surprised when Gentiles do the things of the law. We shouldn't be threatened by it. Instead, I think we have this awesome opportunity to name it and to celebrate it. To say, that smells like Jesus. A few years back, I met up with a woman who had left the church, and, and, I, and she didn't call herself a Christian, and I asked her what had happened, and she talked about being involved in the church and just becoming overwhelmingly frustrated with the hypocrisy she saw. She saw a church that seemed to care more about money and power, a church that uh, kicked people out for certain sins and ignored other ones. And then she'd gone through a, a pretty difficult personal situation, which caused her to leave. And so what she said is, you know, I don't call myself a Christian. Now I just focus on helping people, particularly women in vulnerable places. If I see a woman who's in need, I will help them. I will drop anything, financial, emotional, spiritual, whatever they need. I will be there to help that person in need. And as I sat there and listened to her talk about this, this stirring, this conviction, this longing in her heart, all I could think was that smells a lot like Jesus. And so I said that to her said, so you're frustrated with religious hypocrisy and you feel called to protect and lift up marginalized people. That sounds a lot like Jesus. Maybe you're a little bit closer to this Jesus you think you've left behind. Maybe God's a little closer to you than you think. And when I said that to her, we had a moment, like a genuine Jesus moment, where we both walked towards God together. After all, God is not the God of the Christians. God is the God of all people, and God loves all people. This doesn't invalidate our faith. Instead, it reminds us that we worship a God who is bigger. We worship a God who, as Romans tells us, is reconciling all things to himself. 
And so when we see Jesus in unexpected places, we don't have to cut it down. Instead, we can call it out and say, man, that smells a lot like Jesus. So what would it look like to do that? When you see your non-Christian friends and neighbors doing the things of God, to not feel threatened by that, but to call it out. And to join God's work in that person as God reconciles your neighbor and your friend to himself, to walk alongside with them, to humbly walk with them towards the God of the universe. Not to stand over against, not to assume we have God and they don't, but to walk towards Jesus together. Amen. Amen. So that's point one. Assume, don't assume that your non-Christian friends don't know God. Point two, when we see sin in others, we approach it as fellow travelers, not judges. Paul continues by saying, we don't get to stand over our neighbors because frankly, we aren't that great ourselves. He says, you who claim to teach others, do you teach yourselves? You who preach against stealing, do you steal? You who say that people shouldn't commit adultery, do you commit adultery? He says, for it is not those who hear the law who are righteous in God's sight, but it is those who obey the law, those who do the law, the doers of the law who will be declared righteous. This might rub our Protestant sensibilities the wrong way, but what Paul is getting at is having the right beliefs doesn't make us right with God. Checking the box on a form that says Christian doesn't make us right with God. Instead, we become a Christian when we surrender ourselves to God. We begin the process of letting God change us and make us new. So faith is not a matter of having the right theology. Faith instead is the moment when Jesus looks at the disciples and says, come follow me. And they leave behind the old way of life. Faith is admitting that God is over us and opening our hands and saying, God, make me new. When we do this, we admit that God doesn't belong to us and that we instead belong to God. And that the righteousness we gain in this process is a gift from God, not a matter of us being awesome. And so we see, when we see sin in the world and are in our friends and our neighbors, it's not that we can't talk about it, right? It's not that we just get to a place of like, well, you do your thing, I do mine, it's all good. It's that when we see it, we don't get to judge. Because God is the judge. And instead, we approach the sin of others as fellow travelers. We say, hey, it looks like you're dealing with anxiety. Here's how God has helped me in that. And honestly, here's where I'm not healed in that yet. Maybe you can help me. It's a walking next to, not a standing over. We are not the judge. We are a fellow traveler. Can you imagine doing that for those who are around you? When we make God too small, when we let God be an idea or an ideology, then we feel the need to go out and judge the world. We feel the need to run around and stamp out the sin of others, to let others know that they are wrong and we are right. But this is good news, right? This is actually good news that God's going to judge the world. God sees all the mess in the world and he's going to take care of it. That's his job. He said he's going to do it which means we're actually off the hook. We are freed from judging our neighbor. We are called to love. 
to walk with them towards Jesus in humility and in love. So that's point two. When we see the sin in the world, when we see sin in our friends and neighbors, we don't stand over it as judge, but we walk next to them as fellow travelers, and we walk humbly towards Jesus together. Amen? And point three, Paul concludes this section of his argument by asking, so what advantage then is there in being a Jew? Or in our case, what advantage is there in being a Christian? In other words, if those outside the church can know God, and we're not really that much better than those outside the church, then, then why does it matter? Is there any difference? And to this sentence, what to this question, what advantage is there in being a Christian? Paul says, much in every way. It's an emphatic statement, right? He says, heck yeah, this, it matters, man. It totally matters. Don't get lost in my argument here and forget that it, how much it matters that we are in Christ. And we could spend hours pulling that apart, talking about why we have the Holy Spirit. We have the assurance of salvation. We have the church to be family of faith around us. But Paul narrows in on one thing in particular that I want to talk about. He says, the Jews have been entrusted with the very words of God. The story the revelation, the scriptures. Not that long ago, I got together with a, a friend, um, a non-Christian friend who was struggling in her marriage. And when we talked, I realized that many of the same, that we were having many of the same struggles. It's not that I was doing great and she was doing terrible. But one thing that stood out to me was how much vocabulary I had that she did not. Being a Christian, I had language to talk about things like confession and forgiveness and even abstract things like absolution. I had scripture to tell me that love keeps no record of wrongs. I had the tradition of the church like communion to teach me about self-sacrifice and unconditional love. And I had Jesus as my model on how to live. Again, none of this means I'm actually better at her than marriage and, and anything. She might be a, a more kind and forgiving person than I am. And yet I was able to give words to what we were going through. I was able to offer the wisdom of scripture and the model of Jesus. And even talk about something like communion to, to get at the idea that forgiveness isn't a one-time thing, but something you practice, something you have to put on over and over and over again. We were walking the same path, but I had all these words. And that matters. When we did philosophy, our philosophical discussion group, I noticed this over and over. We'd come to a topic like death, and you just realize how few words that people have been given to talk about such an important topic like that. And here as Christians, we have all these words. We have traditions, we have ideas, we have scripture, we have Jesus to, to give us words, to give us ideas, to teach us how to live. And we can give those away in beautiful ways. I heard an interview a few years back. It was with a woman who had grown up secular and she married a religious husband. Her husband was a, re a practicing Jewish man. And after they got married, they got involved in human rights um, and they were specifically working with the Palestinians. And she talked about how she was trying to make this argument this one time that the Palestinians had rights just because. It wasn't because they were right or wrong that, you know, it, was, it wasn't a matter of who was right in the situation. They had rights just because they were human beings. 
And she was struggling to find the words to justify this when all of a sudden her husband replied, they have rights because they were created in the image of God. Quoted Genesis 1. And she realized that this ancient story gave words to exactly what she was trying to say, exactly what had been stirring in her heart. And over time, she began to follow God. This is a gift we have. This is a gift that we have to give to the world around us. We have been entrusted with the very words of God. What would it look like to use that knowledge not to combat or to stand against or defeat our neighbor, but to give them words for the longing of their heart, to help them name the God who is at work in them, who loves them, who created their soul? God is bigger than our religion, and yet our religion gives words to the otherwise mysterious God. What would it look like to use those words not just for ourselves, but to help our neighbor and our friends find the God who created their very soul. Amen. So where does this leave us? Where does Romans 2 leave us? Just a couple quick things to, to wrap us up. I actually want to leave us in the exact same place that Ian's sermon left us last week, if he had a chance to listen to that. And it's just this. I had some nice PowerPoint slides for this, but, you know, we don't have PowerPoint, so you just have to imagine this in your head. What Paul is critiquing is the idea that God belongs to us, that we are over God. The idea that God belongs to us, that God stays in boundaries that we, that we have set up, that as believers we have a monopoly on God. Instead, what God calls us is to flip that. So instead of us over God, to flip it the other way and realize that we belong to God. And when we acknowledge this, it changes us. When we truly do, when we truly surrender to the God of the universe, it changes us in profound ways. And we begin to become like Jesus. We no longer just have the window dressing of Christianity or the religious identity, as Paul talks about. But we actually come to begin to be shaped to be like Jesus. And then when we go out and interact with our neighbors, we maintain that dynamic. We don't think of ourselves as over our neighbor or even worse, over our neighbor with God down here too. When we do that, we begin to think of God as a product that we sell or an idea we have to convince our neighbor of. God is this thing that we have to give to our neighbor. Instead, we flip that whole triangle upside down and realize that God is over both us and our neighbor. And so though we are in Christ, though we have this salvation, though we have these very words, we walk next to. We don't stand over or stand against or stand above, we walk next to our neighbor and we walk towards Jesus together. We don't walk as those who have already been made perfect. That won't happen till the end. We don't walk as experts. We walk as fellow travelers and say, hey, let's walk to the words of life together. God is bigger than our religious categories. So when we see those that don't fit our category of who is in, we don't stand over or against, but we walk humbly towards God together. Amen? Amen. To 
find out more about Redemption Church, visit redemptionbristol.org.